Ladies and gentlemen, Happiness and Darkness proudly presents our 55th feature presentation, Spider-Man. On a school field trip, Peter Parker is bitten by a genetically modified spider. He wakes up the next morning with incredible powers. After witnessing the death of his uncle Ben, Peter decides to put his new skills to use in order to rid the city of evil. But someone else has other plans. The Green Goblin, aka Norman Osborn, sees Spider-Man as a threat and must dispose of him. Even if it means the Goblin has to target Peter's Aunt May and the girl he secretly pines for, Mary Jane Watson. Can Spider-Man save his city from the green threat? Shabba people, and welcome to our 56th episode of Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast where we cover superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image, and more. If it came from a comic and had theatrical release, you know we'll discuss it. Naturally, there will be spoilers, folks, so you have been warned. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and today we'll be discussing Spider-Man. And joining me to discuss this first big budget film featuring Spidey is on one hand, the man who picked this movie, Charles Skaggs. Hey, Charles, how you doing? I'm doing great, Nick. How are you? How's everybody today? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks, Charles. And of course, you know, we're just super, super happy to have you back. You know, it's been a while since, you know, we, we had you back. You know, you were with us when we discussed our Endgame um, 50th episode. So it's wonderful to have you back, you know, to, to discuss another movie. Well, I can never say no to you, Nick. And uh, it's great being here with you and also talking to Rachel once again. Yes, indeed. And in fact, you named her. On the other side, of course, we have our surprise guest co-host, who you have, of course, heard on Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast, and on our review of both Endgame and Captain Marvel, the one and only Rachel Friend. Hey, Rachel, how are you? I am good. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. Well, guys, today, of course, we are reviewing Spider-Man from 2002, directed by Sam Raimi, written by David Cope. The original score was by Danny Elfman, and on estimate, to put it into 2020 money, this movie cost $200 million and made over a billion at the box office, if you put it in 2020 money, that is. So when it comes to this, you know, this movie and, you know, I guess first impressions on your rewatch, guys, Charles, you being the, the man who picked this film, what were your impressions? on your rewatch and why did you want to bring spider-man to the table today well i think my impressions on the rewatch um were essentially that uh you know the movie is starting to just just starting to look a little bit dated but overall it still holds up great and it's very exciting and um as far as you know like what why i wanted to pick this movie uh it's one of my all-time favorite comic book movies i love the Yes, it's an origin story, but I think it's a very well-told, well-crafted origin story. It's not a perfect movie. There are flaws here and there, but overall, I think it's, as, as a Spider-Man fan, as a longtime Spider-Man fan, um, it definitely was something that, you know, we'd waited a long time to, to see Spidey out finally on the big screen and done properly, and this movie did not disappoint me. Great. And and Rachel, when it comes to you, you know, you have talked a little bit about Tom Holland. When it comes you know, to Tobey Maguire and, you know, this first Spider-Man film, what would you say are your first impressions and, you know, your thoughts from your rewatch? Oh, yeah. It's been a long time since I watched this one. I can't <laughs> even remember how long it's been. Um, I, I may have not. 
uh, it's been a long time uh, <laughs> and yeah charles is right it is starting to age there is a couple of points where i'm like oh that cgi is not aged well um uh, yeah i'm not a big spider-man fan i actually think this movie was my introduction really to spider-man because i think i'm just a bit too young for the cartoon um Mm-hmm. That was, you know, really famous back in the day. I think my first introduction, I think, to anything Marvel was the 90s X-Men cartoon series. So that's telling my age right there. <laughs> um, so, like, this was my first introduction to, like, anything Marvel. My first Stanley cameo before I even know who Stanley was. Um, so, it, it it's, it's kind of funny, you know, considering where I am now as far as my fandom when it comes to marvel but um yeah just uh, there was some we'll we'll get into it (laughs) (laughs) my opinion on this has definitely changed (laughs) okay well we definitely definitely will be interesting for sure so you know that so that's starting off here you know getting to our players on the board you know when it came to me though you know to give a brief thought on me this movie had a huge impact when it came out when it came to me myself and my brother actually were huge huge fans of this movie you know my my we bought the spider-man video game we just geeked out over it like no tomorrow and owned this i believe on vhs i think at the time so that goes to tell you how you know the time it dates me as well but yeah it was just at the time was great i suppose you know the both of you do make a point when it comes to cgi is yeah some effects haven't aged as well as say maybe spider-man 2 for example which i think still holds up very much so today but here yeah but but i think it was just fantastic to finally get you know spider-man on the big screen and i actually recall that you know when batman came out at the time in 89 um you had DC kind of crowing over Stanley saying, you know, oh, we've got Batman. Where's Spider-Man? And, you know, and eventually he got what he got his wish. And, and here we are. So let's get to our players on the board here, guys, starting with our protagonist, Tobey Maguire, of course, as, he, as his first film as Spider-Man, as Peter Parker Spider-Man. He would, of course, go on to do three of these films. So, Rachel, when it came to our first big Spider-Man and, you know, Tobey Maguire's performance, what did you make of it? Um... Looking back at it now, he isn't okay, Peter Parker. Um, honestly, I think he seems a little old mm. for the role, even though at this point Peter's supposed to be like a high school senior. So he's supposed to be 18, you know, they, they graduate high school in this and, and all of that. But he, he seems a little old for it um, as, as Peter. And then as Spider-Man... I, I don't know if his body is quite right for it. I know he actually had to go through quite a bit to bulk up for this role. He spent like months doing like high protein, doing all sorts of muscle building and all sorts of stuff to, to get in shape for this. Um, and that's partially what convinced like the producers that he was the, the proper choice for the role. Um, but uh there's still just something about his body proportions that just seems wrong to me when in the Spider-Man suit. Mm. Um, I, I think he's maybe just a bit too short and I think maybe a bit too bulky. Um, so um, that, that, that threw me off. Um, you know, now that we're 
so many, you know, 18 years later and we've had, we're now on our third live action Spider-Man <laughs> actor. Uh, so um, like Andrew Garfield, you know, the, the, the one after him, like Andrew Garfield, he wasn't that good of a Peter Parker, but I think he looked better as Spider-Man, I think. Mm-hmm. So um, that being said, uh, I think Tobey Maguire did okay with what he had. Um, you know, this was the first, like, big budget Marvel tentpole movie. Granted, it's Sony, so we're still several years out before, you know, Disney starts doing the MCU stuff. But, um, you know, I think he did the best he could considering this was uncharted territory for these types of super, uh, superhero movies because up to this point it had been DC we had uh, Batman essentially um, but superhero movies were not what they are now um, you know uh, we're still six years away from the first Iron Man yeah. um, so it's like you could see the the kernels of what would eventually become what we consider you know superhero franchises we have now um but yeah i guess you gotta start somewhere (laughs) somebody (laughs) somebody's got to be the first one to do it and in this case it was sony and toby mcguire and we got to give him credit for that um you know he you know he he does a halfway decent lovable dorky Peter Parker, but looking back at it now, it's like eh, I think he's. I don't know if he was quite right. <laughs> I see. Well, you know what? You make up. You bring up an interesting point because um, obviously prior to this, the X Men had actually had a big success in two thousand, and they were trying to. Uh, they had an idea of maybe doing somewhat of a shared universe because Hugh mm-hmm. Jackman was supposed to make a cameo in this because they wanted yeah. to connect the universes, but they dropped it in the end. But I, I, I see where you're coming from, and of course, I guess seeing now you know a third Spider Man, Tom Holland, and having had Andrew Garfield, it does put things into a different perspective for sure. And when it comes to you charles you know when uh, what did you make of toby Maguire's portrayal of spider-man and you know um what he does in this movie compared to maybe garfield or holland well i still i don't think i still found my ideal peter parker yet mm. as far as spider-man goes um toby Maguire, as the originator of the you know the film cinematic version of spider-man um i think he does a solid job here he's like I said, he's not my ideal Spider-Man, but but he he's able to convey um, Peter's um, insecurities, his um, overly developed sense of responsibility, thanks to Uncle Ben, and um, you know, but and he, and he he's a very sympathetic, likable enough Peter Parker. He um, he you can see that he has. Great chemistry with um, Rosemary Harris as Aunt May. Um, I love the scenes between him and Cliff Robertson as Ben Parker. And um, just, to, you know, just as, as a general all-around Spider-Man, I think he does pretty well. He's not as good with the quips as, say, Tom Holland is. But I think he has a little bit more gravitas than Tom Holland. 
Um, he's a more established actor. He's come from, you know, like other things like the Cider House Rules. Yeah. So, so I think he he brings a more um, more cinematic experience to the role than say Tom Holland does. Um, compared to Andrew Garfield, you know, I I think Andrew Garfield is a completely different Peter Parker. He's more in like the Brian Michael Bendis Ultimate Spider-Man, yeah. Ultimate Peter Parker version. Um, so, so Andrew's Spider-Man to me isn't exactly a a, a classic Peter Parker, mm-hmm. and but 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 um, but I have to say that that Tommy Maguire definitely is that is a very much a Stan Lee, a Steve Ditko Peter Parker, and and I really love that about him. Um, you know, just he he hits the notes that he needs to hit most importantly, and um, and you know he helped he helped launch a franchise. So I have to give him credit for that. I, well, I very much agree with you. I mean, as you say, you know, this was literally the Spider-Man from the original Stanley and Ditko comics. I mean, exactly. You know, literally how a nerd I think was perceived at the time because you have no friends pining for a girl he feels he'll never get. And of course, highly intelligent. And I think this was the Spider-Man a large portion of the fandom hoped for. Though it would have been nice to, like you said, have a few more quips here and there when fighting Green Goblin. Though we did get him calling him Gobby, which was a nice touch. (laughs) Um, Also, I thought it was incredibly interesting how so many references were made to rival company DC's characters compared to possibly referencing Marvel ones. As you have Peter on top of the building and he's figuring out his powers, he quotes Superman and Shazam. And he is even told he's not Superman by his Aunt May, which I thought was curious. And you would obviously never see that today with the MCU being so established. So it might have been the fact of the MCU wasn't established yet. And everybody kind of knew more of the DC characters, I guess. Or maybe those were more in the mainstream. But just like the comics, I did like how at first he uses his found, newfound powers for personal gain rather than immediately having that hardwired behavior of being a good guy, you know, when it comes to superheroes. Um, he's at, you know, because he's like, you get superpowers. Are you going to use them for good? Nah, he's going to use them to enter a wrestling match and get money <laughs> so he can get a car to impress the girl he has the hots for. Like I'm sure a lot of uh, young, hot-blooded men would probably do. But uh, ju- I also got a little bit of a Thor vibe because just like Thor, which we recently reviewed, it's very much that coming of age and hero's journey. And I think it doesn't hurt that by movie's end, he has lost his friend and actually could have what he, and also, of course, uh, his father figure, and could actually have what he wants, i.e. Mary Jane. But he does have that superhero selfless attitude of wanting her to be safe. Those we did see, of course, in Spider-Man 2, those two are constantly on again and off again, which got a little bit annoying at times. Now, before we get to our next character, guys, I did have one quick question I wanted to, sh- to, to throw at you both. Were you happy with the fact that in this case, Spider-Man self-creates his webs or would you have preferred the web shooters? Uh, for me personally, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a, you know, obviously I'm a, a diehard comics traditionalist. And this was a big controversy back in 2002 mm-hmm. where of Spidey, you know, biologically generating his own webbing. But so I prefer web shooters personally, I mean, I kind of get why they did that. They didn't have to go through the trouble of explaining that, hey, you know, Peter had to develop his own web shooters. But I think that kind of took something away from Peter's intelligence, uh, or at least his depiction of his intelligence, because one of the things that we, you know, like Spider-Man fans loved 
was that that Peter built that himself, you know, showing his technological skill. And uh, and here with making a, a biological ability um, that, you know, with spinnerets coming out of his wrists, that, um, you know, they, it kind of, I think it took something away. But on the upside, at least the spinnerets were not coming out of his posterior like they do yeah. in spiders. <laughs> <laughs> well said, Charles. And Rachel, were you happy with these, should we say, biological webs, or you, would you have also preferred the web shooters? Um, I, I don't know if I necessarily have a preference one way or the other. Um, I, I did, I did enjoy seeing him up on the roof there, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to, to make it work. And then finally, uh, stumbling upon the eponymous flip, <laughs> you know, hand gesture that, you know, Stanley kind of helped make famous. In fact, he's, he's making that gesture in the photo I have with my husband and I with him. Um, I actually asked him to do that <laughs> when we were getting nice. ready to have the photo taken. And he was like, absolutely. <laughs> I spoke to Stanley. Uh, so <laughs> I ha I'm a little partial to that but i mean even with the web shooters he could still make that that hand gesture it was just kind of one of those things where i'm like ah he's doing the thing um <laughs> but uh but at the same time it's like the with the web shooters um especially with holland's spider-man that also gives you uh, it opens up more opportunities for more variety as we see in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming when he gets lo accidentally locked up um, and he's working with the, the AI in his suit and she's, he's going through the training regimen and he gets to try out all these different shots. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's like, you know, if it's biological, in theory, he has an infinite amount of webbing available to him. Yeah. Um, but it's really just in, unless I guess he figures out something biologically, he's just got the one option, you know, just the, the straight, you know, shot of webbing coming out versus with the, you know, lab created stuff where it's he, he has only what he can carry on him, but a, he can also have a variety and using it in several different ways besides just you know, just shooting and either using it as transportation or to, in this case, you know, shoot it in Green Goblin's face to temporarily blind him. Yeah. Uh, so, He's got more modifications. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of a, eh, well, there's pluses and minuses to both options. So mm -hmm. I, I agree. I mean, I think I, I would have preferred the, the web shooters myself as you know, as kind of both pointed out it does take away a little bit from uh, peter's ingenuity and that's one of the core characteristics of the character you know just kind of like i suppose tony stark because he is a very brilliant guy and is able to figure out all his own stuff so it did upset me a little bit but i could see where they were going with it because you know like even like you were both mentioning i think charles was saying this is the fact is um it might would have taken away from the story to have him kind of go through the motions of putting the web shooters together and it might have taken away from i guess some of the action so 
I can I can see why they did it. Maybe just for um, to, to expedite, you know, things. I suppose. So speaking of uh, you know uh, Spider Man's paramour, we we touched up on a little bit earlier. Let's look at her more in depth. Kirsten Dunst, of course, as Mary Jane Watson. So when it came to the love interest, shall we say, and one of the leading ladies in Peter's life, Charles, what did you make of of Kirsten Dunst, Mary Jane Watson? Well, I, I really love um, Kirsten Dunst, her performance in this. I think she's a, a, a great Mary Jane. She's um, obviously very attractive, but also, you know, she's um, she's a great character. And uh, especially when you, when when um, she's showing uh, a, a, a secret side to her personality, um, when in terms of her abusive father and um, that that upbringing, that poor upbringing, like Peter, um, if, you know, coming from Brooklyn and the way that she's trying to keep that secret um, from Harry when uh, she's forced to become a waitress in a coffee bar. And, um, you know, she, she asked Peter not to tell Harry about that because she's afraid of what he might think about her. So, so I think it makes her, you know, gives her a little bit more depth. And, um, you know, as she's, she wants to be an actress. She she sees herself as like wanting to be that that glamorous stage actress, but but she's still struggling. And I and I and I really find that very endearing. Um, now through a lot of this movie, she does play um, a, a lot of the you know like the you know the you know the the girl needing rescued. Um, and I you know I would have liked to have seen. Um, I know in you know, later versions. Um, you know, like when 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 we have Gwen Stacy in Peter in Andrew Garfield's The Amazing Spider-Man movies, um, you know, she's a much more a proactive character. She's less of a damsel in distress, and and I wish we could have seen that here with Kirsten Dunst uh, a little bit more. Um, she's able to kind of fend off, help fend off the Green Goblin's attack uh, during the the um, little parade that they have, the little celebration, but. But by and large, she's she's primarily just a target for the Green Goblin, and I, and I would have liked to have seen more of that, or I mean, less of that, and and her being more of a of someone who could at least contribute to helping stop the Green Goblin. Um, I know Alicia. I know Alicia Witt was someone that was originally um, suggested by Sam Raimi for the role of Mary Jane. I, I as a, as an Alicia Witt fan, I think she would have been fabulous in the role but i think kirsten dunce brings a, a, a that girl next door vibe and and i think that's something that's very essential to mj's character Oh, very well said. And I, and you know, and it's true. I suppose, you know, also looking at now, once again, with 2020 eyes, now seeing how progressive, thankfully, films have become and even superhero ones where, you know, the female characters get more to do than just scream, help me, help me. So I was, I'm, I, you know, it's actually great to see that that's, that that's come to pass. And Rachel, when it comes to you, what did you make of Mary Jane Watson? Yeah. I mean, she definitely does the, the girl next door, literally in this case, uh, <laughs> uh, very well. Um, I, you know, we don't, I, I would have liked a bit more, I guess, personality. I mean, we still, you know, I mean, this, the, these end up becoming a trilogy, so we do get to see more of her, but um, she seems kind of not as, 
dimensional um i think if she could be i mean we see that she has an abusive household um apparently the, the, we presume it's her father um you know constantly yelling at her um but then she also you know she hangs out with some of the the bullies in the high school which you know Flash Thompson but, yeah yeah like Flash who is just you know he's the biggest jerk um you know she and she sees Peter getting picked on and she like intervenes a little bit yeah. but that's it um you know it's like like oh I'm gonna intervene because you know because it's a I don't know it doesn't seem like the things she does are necessarily in it because it's she's being altruistic that you know mm -hmm. it's just like oh I'd rather just you know have them stop the bus so Peter can get on because then they'll shut up <laughs> <laughs> and stop laughing at him out the window uh, type thing. So, um, you know, she just, yeah, I don't necessarily care for this version of, of Mary Jane. I mean, she's definitely one end of the spectrum compared to Zendaya's MJ mm. um, in, the, in the Holland movies who couldn't be any different you know um and then you kind of got Gwen Stacy there in the middle with the Garfield movies um so yeah I don't care for the damsel in distress the con you know who doesn't have doesn't seemingly have any agency um and seems to be incapable of fighting for herself or even attempting to um so uh that you know seeing that knowing that now we're getting better at, at that, but seeing that that was still the case then in the early 2000s, it's like, oh, I'm so glad we've gotten a bit away from that. It still pops up every now and then, um, but I, I'm so glad that, you know, like, yeah, you can go after the, the girl who's seemingly the love interest just because it's kind of a cliche, but it's an easy cliche to go to. Wow. Uh, it's an easy way to manipulate your hero is go after his, you know, the person he's got the hots for. But, you know, she can get in a kick or two in the process. I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed. I mean, I, you know, three cheers for, for progressiveness for showing that when it comes to, uh, to movies, indeed. I mean, I actually listened to the Blu-ray commentary of this film and uh, Kirsten Dunst is one of the folks who provides commentary. And I'm actually glad that even Kirsten herself pointed out that she got tired of hearing herself scream by movie's end. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my one big problem with this character, as she is a banshee throughout the course of this picture. Um, on the plus side, her and Toby have great chemistry, and I think some of the best scenes in this film are between our two lovebirds. And of course, we get that famous upside-down kiss, which has become so iconic and has been parodied all over popular culture. So, you know, they, they definitely have that going for them. And, you know, as we had actually said in our Spider-Man 2 review, MJ, I think, you know, and you were both pointing this out, she comes from a broken home, and I think she pretty much attaches herself to whoever shows her some semblance of love. As we see her going from her relationship with Flash Thompson to ultimately dating Harry Osborn, and then kind of pining for Peter, 
And, you know, granted, I was I'm very blessed and lucky to have been brought up in an, a, a very sort of uh, stable household where folks kind of didn't scream at each other. But I think it is kind of a, my interpretation is a cry for help as she's looking for anything she can to escape her terrible home situation and does seem to be constantly in two minds about either her men or who to hang around because she is just kind of looking for, you know, affection or love. That aside, I think she's the only person outside of Peter's family who cares for him and shows him affection, though, of course, she does want more as he does. And that's uh, that's you know, that that's what I think is one of the big kind of problems with this trilogy is that constant on again, off again, kind of soap opera thing they have between the two of them. But they do work very well together. Um, but speaking of Peter's supporters, guys, let's look at his family. Of course, Aunt May Parker, played by Rosemary Harris and Uncle Ben Parker, played by Cliff Robertson. So when it came to uh, Peter's um, aunt and uncle, Rachel, what did you make of these two? Uh, they're just the sweetest. <laughs> just seeing the two of them together um, is is just like oh, this that's you know it's like oh, I mean they're his aunt and uncle, but it, you know it's it's uh, very grandfather grandmother esque too, um, and they're just they're they're sweet together and the um, their chemistry together. Uh, both with the with the scenes with Toby Maguire and then the ones without, it's like you know, those two you could just definitely tell that they've got some good on screen on screen chemistry there, um, and it's very obvious that they they care about Peter um, and are just doing the best they can. You know, they they live outside of the of the of you know the the big city the city you know manhattan um and you know they've got a they've got a roof over their heads um you know they make sure that peter obviously is getting an education and you know he gets fed you know even when he isn't necessarily doing you know his chores um you know they're not the, you could you could you could tell that like they come to him out of concern you know unlike probably across the way at MJ's house you know Mary Jane's house where you know if she forgot to take out the trash unfortunately she'd probably get the crap beat out of her mm-hmm. um, you know Peter usurps on his responsibilities and Uncle Ben's just like you know it's like oh. okay we understand you're a teenager you know you're hormones and you're at, you know you're at a turning point in your life graduating high school and trying to figure out what you're going to be as an adult and it's like you know peter is yeah I, unfortunately it's after the uncle ben's death that i think he realizes just how fortunate he was to have a figure like uncle ben um, in his life, and um, I think going forward, he impre- he appreciates his aunt even more um, going forward. Um, and uh, it, it was it was kind of nice to see an older version of Ben and um, you know his aunt his aunt and uncle. So not that you know. Not that I don't love Aunt Hot, you know, Hot Aunt May <laughs> versus <laughs> Obey. Uh, Aunt, Aunt Milt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, does this see that older, um, just kind of quiet, loving 
you know, family relationship that they have together, which is, it was really sweet to, to, to watch. Oh, well, very well said. Yeah, it's true. It is an interesting contrast, you know, now having Marisa Tomei as a younger May Parker. And Charles, you know, what did you make of these two? And, you know, yeah, and even, you know, possibly a comparison between uh, Marisa Tomei's Aunt May and Rosemary Harris's Aunt May. Yeah, I'm, um, I am. I adore Cliff Robertson and Rosemary Harris as Aunt May and Uncle Ben. I, for For Spider-Man fans, you know, we know that Essentially, Aunt May and Uncle Ben are the Spider-Man version of Mon Pa Kent. Mm-hmm. They they provide that loving foundation, um, the the moral compass that you know that guiding force that you know that could have you know had it been handled differently by someone else could have uh, turned Peter down a much darker road, darker path. Um, they instilled those core values in Peter and, and it's why, you know, um, you know, to see that conveyed on screen was, was absolutely wonderful to me as a Spider-Man fan. Uh, I've, you know, and it, and it makes it all the more tragic when, when poor Cliff Robertson's uncle Ben is, is horribly murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I loved the depiction of that, the, the, the sequence of events, the tragedy of the events because, you know, Peter, he's coming off of, of that wrestling gig and he's just been stiffed by, by the guy who promised to pay him $3,000 to wrestle only gives him a hundred bucks. And so he's feeling a little shafted by that. And he has a chance to stop the guy robbing the man that just betrayed him. And he chooses not to. Uh, he chooses just to let him go, do nothing. And in, in what becomes such a central, pivotal point in, in Peter's evolution, creation as a hero, and also an, at a tragic point in Peter's life, um, that Robert gets away and ends up killing his Uncle Ben. Now, it's handled a little differently from the comics. In the comics, it was essentially a burglary where the burglar got in and, and killed Uncle Ben. Here it's a carjacking, which is probably a little bit more, you know, modern, I guess, in terms of storytelling. But but it's no less powerful because Peter is left with the guilt of um, that he was able to do something to stop that robber in advance. And because he failed to do so, Uncle Ben, his his mentor, his his the you know the, the the man who raised him helped raise him um is now dead and he bears the weight of that responsibility but of course uncle ben before he does die he installs that key mantra that it is so central to the spider-man mythos with great power comes great responsibility and and boy howdy does peter take res- that to heart um probably a little bit too much to heart because because he takes that sense of responsibility too much it almost becomes an overly developed sense of responsibility and it you know and, and it's why at the end of the movie um you know he has to turn away from a key moment that where he could hook up with Mary Jane once and for all at that funeral scene and he because of this of this sense of responsibility as Spider-Man he feels it as a curse and that he can't be happy. He can't be with Mary Jane because of it. And it's that guilt that drives him 
over Uncle Ben's death. And, and it becomes more so because every day he has to look Aunt May in the eye and, and, and keep the secret from her that his inaction caused the death of her husband, her love of her life. And, uh, and it's, and it's just, you know, this, this horrible tragedy that Peter, this burden that, that Peter lives with. And also I think drives him as Spider-Man. Well, yes, it very much so. And, you know, I, I very, I agree with you when it comes to the great power, great responsibility thing for sure, Charles. I mean, these two, I think are possibly like you were both saying the ideal aunt and uncle, everybody would be lucky to have. I mean, they're both incredibly supportive and so strongly believe in Peter. It's so heartwarming when it comes to, <coughs> excuse me, my opinion of Uncle Ben, you know, Cliff Robertson took this role and elevated it as we see he's very much your old school guy trying to find a place in the modern world. As I'm thinking this being 2002, it might also resonate with audiences following the post 9-11 economic crisis and heck might resonate today as well, though he doesn't wallow in self, you know, because he doesn't wallow in self pity on, on, you know, the, the fact they're on hard times and you know the country is suffering through you know an economic crisis he actually focuses and his energies on being there for may and his nephew peter and is very much i think one of the two father figures to him in this film it was wonderful they did they did give him the great power speech great power responsibility speech and i just love his kind demeanor it just makes him so lovable and i think the same can also be said for aunt may whom we actually did gush about a lot in our review of spider-man 2 she really comes into her own i think like you were saying earlier charles after ben is killed and we, we can see how much of an important presence she was and, and will be in peter's life moving forward i actually wonder if even by this point she knows he's spider-man when she winds up in the hospital courtesy of course the greek goblin as you know we see that she pretends to sleep while eve's dropping on peter and mj's conversation and that kind of smile on her face kind of made me think as mm, maybe she knows more than than she's letting on not to mention i love the fact that she's the biggest shipper for this for this couple yeah. and, and also she's so feisty as she has no problem slapping norman osborne's hand when he wants to start eating during their thanksgiving yeah. lunch i thought it was fantastic I, was like, I love you lady i mean definitely really wonderful wonderful woman for sure <laughs> and then, although that look that norman gives her when she does it you know, just uh, oh, yeah, it's cold. You, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, just you wondered. You know, it was a great scene because just a very quick scene, but it was a great scene because you wondered what would have happened uh, if Norman had let his impulses go at that moment. Oh yeah. In fact, I mean, the, the, those two actors play it so so well. Just with an exchange right. of looks, it's just fantastic. But, but Rosemary Harris is brilliant. She's oh. terrific in this role. Oh, wonderful, wonderful indeed. Um, so, guys, let's get to, uh, we mentioned the Osbournes, let's get to Peter's best friend and soon-to-be nemesis by somewhat movies end and even more so as the trilogy continues, James Franco, of course, as Harry Osborne. So, Charles, when it comes to you, what did you make of, of James Franco and Harry Osborne's character in this? Well, this movie was kind of my, my first exposure to James Franco as an actor. Probably mm. a lot of people uh, felt that way. He, um, you know, he's, Harry's a very complex character, obviously. Uh, he comes from this rich upbringing, but he has this very strained relationship with his father, Norman. And, um, but, but at the same token, you know, he could have been a spoiled rich brat, but he's also someone that reaches out to Peter, you know, and he, and befriends him, which is, you know, Peter obviously has very few friends at, at Midtown High. And 
Um, you know, so so it's it it does it's almost like you know ri- Harry is essentially this rich outcast from his own society a little bit. He he was where we find out we're told that he went to these prep schools, got kicked out of them, and um, because he felt that those weren't for him, and so he attends public school with Peter, and so I think maybe in Peter he kind of sees that fellow outsider a little bit. And um, it's to Harry's credit that he he tries to reach out to Peter and and befriend him. Um, But now, obviously, through the course of the movie, um, that 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 complex relationship that Harry has with his father takes more hold. And, you know, there's a there's a very, you know, a very pivotal scene, I think, when at, at the at the Thanksgiving dinner scene sequence where um Norman tells Harry privately with everybody else overhearing this conversation that, you know, that he needs to just broom him, do what he wants with MJ and then broom her fast, get rid of her because she's just in, she's just with him for his money. And Harry doesn't really go out of his way to defend MJ and MJ hears this. And, you know, she's like, no, thanks a lot for defending me, Harry. (laughs) And he, and, you know, instead of apologizing for that lack of support, he gets angry and he's like, you know, he he, he starts defending his father and takes his side in that debate when when obviously he should have supported MJ. And, you know, so um, and this is on top of the fact that he had kept their relationship secret from Peter. Peter had to find out independently. So so it kind of. That that friendship, that close friendship they had at the beginning of this movie falls apart, and um, and it, and it and it sets Harry down that darker path, as we see, especially toward the end of the movie after he think believes that Spider Man killed his father. Yes, indeed, he's a very complex character for sure. And Rachel, when it comes to you, what did you think make of of Harry Osborn in this first film? Um, yeah, he's definitely extremely complex he's definitely got he's definitely got daddy issues uh (laughs) putting it mildly um yeah but that's not i don't want to use that as a an excuse for his actions but it does it it does give you at least on some level explains a lot yeah. yeah it definitely explains a lot you know it's obvious that he, you know, he he's grown up with a lot of money. He's a he's a he's grown up with a lot of privilege, but money at the end of the day, he, you know, he's got everything available to him in the world because of who his father is and their resources. But his home life, compared to you know, we were just talking about Peter's aunt and uncle, is as cold as you know. It's cold as North Pole at Christmas, seemingly. Um, You know, he doesn't know warmth and affection and a parent that, you know, cares for them and, you know, actually cares about their feelings and what they may be going through. When he, you know, when we see him and and his father um, for the first time as he's dropping him off at the field trip and he's like, you know, I don't want to be don't drop me off here in the Rolls Royce in front of all these public school kids. And he's like, well, it's not my, you know, you're the one that got flunked out 
kicked out of every private school he went to and you know he's just he's just so concerned Norman is just so good more concerned about you know but what his son decides to do and how it's going to inconvenience him mm-hmm. that you know when they do have that fight you know at the, at Thanksgiving um you know, Harry goes to what he knows. You know, he does. It, it probably never occurred to him to defend MJ and go to her side. He went to his father because that's what's familiar. Even if it is toxic, it's what he knows. You know, he just he just, he does not know how to. Sh- he seemingly does not know how to show affection and to, and be supportive to someone you know you use people to get ahead mm-hmm. and um that ends up being you know his downfall going on forward you know it it, it sends him down that dark path that peter does not go down because mm-hmm. he's got the supportive family structure yeah, and in fact, it is a nice sort of comparison, I suppose. It's like you know, comparing also this to the way you were raised is how you know your your you know path in life will go. You know, to be honest, I have to understand I, his behavior at times when it comes to being a best friend and making a move on Mary Jane. As at first, you know, he seems to almost want to egg Peter on to talk to her, and Peter seems too embarrassed. And Harry, of course, takes full advantage of it and ends up getting into a relationship with her. Now, I know all is fair in love and war, but dick move, Harry, dick move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As he even admits to his dad that Peter is madly in love with MJ. So I guess we can either see it as boys will be boys, or he could possibly be trying to give Peter that kick in the butt. He might need to snap him out of things and seize the moment. It was kind of hard, but I think more than anything, it's kind of a dick move. That's how, I'm, go- I'm going with that one. <laughs> he definitely um, broke the bro code on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, not cool, bro. Not cool. Could have at least asked first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So, is it cool if you know you the if I go out with the girl that you've been pining for like for yeah. years? It's like if you're not going to make a move, is it okay if I do? But <laughs> yeah. instead, you know, he acts first and he he just acts and then asks for forgiveness later. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, outside of that, I think you can tell he's starting to also resent Peter somewhat, as his father seems to const- constantly compliment Peter and almost put down his own son and this of course will sow the seeds which will blossom in spider-man 2 and 3 and he's also not exactly boyfriend material as both of you pointed out as mj points out he barely defends her when norman makes out her to be a gold digger and when she looks i think she actually looks great in that oriental style dress and he's like my dad prefers black i mean come on dude seriously yeah really yeah, it's like not even saying you, know, you look beautiful or whatever. It's like I, I just wasn't wasn't down with that. So, yeah, Harry, you definitely need to take some classes on how to treat ladies. I'm seriously. Um, but so before we do get to the big bad guys, I would actually like to give three folks an honorable mention here. Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, as Bonesaw yeah. McGraw. Bruce Campbell as the wrestling announcer, and of yeah. course J.K. Simmons as J. Jones Jameson. So before yes. we of course. Yes. Before we do get to to the villain, uh, to the main villain, guys, any thoughts on on this on this trio? J.K. Simmons is the definitive J. Jonah Jameson. Yes, I'm sorry, no one else. You know, just how a lot of people feel that that uh, Robert Downey Jr. is the definitive Tony Stark. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. J.K. Simmons is the definitive Jonah. As you know, as far as I'm concerned, he's everything I wanted 
in the actor playing Jonah. And, in, and, and Jonah is just such a fun character in the comics. And I, w- I just, I loved his performance. Mm. Did you have any thoughts on Bruce Campbell on Macho Man Randy Savage, Charles? Um, you know, oh yeah, I love the <laughs> yeah. Macho Man Randy Savage, oh yeah. But uh, in this case, got your phone saw. saw. I got you for three minutes. Yeah. So yeah, bone saw is ready. So yeah, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. You, you just so much fun. It was great to get an actual wrestler for this part. Um, the whole wrestling idea was something's taken from the comics, but obviously back in the '60s, it was portrayed a little differently in the comics than it was here in. 2002 uh much less of it you know like this big elaborate show with steel cage and everything um but it was such a fun sequence and you know it was it was great to see uh, sam raimi and the, and the filmmakers um honoring that that wrestling aspect of spider-man's origin bruce campbell obviously has such a strong connection with sam raimi yeah um you know that raimi is very loyal to his actors and you know obviously with um uh, Bruce Campbell being in the Ash in versus Evil Dead movies, and you know that coming from that, that uh, you know it was a great place to put him in, in a very you know noticeable part because he's the guy who gets to name Spider Man in this movie, and uh, it just you know Raimi loves like I said he's very loyal. You know we see a couple other actors. You know Raimi's brother Ted shows up as as one of Jonah's assistants at the Daily Bugle. You've mm-hmm. got. Um, Lucy Lawless turning up in a very quick cameo as, uh, you know, the woman who's interviewed that says, you know, guy, guy with eight hands. Nine, sounds hands. Hot. <laughs> eight hands, yeah. <laughs> it sounds hot. So, yeah, that's so. So it's kind of great to, to uh, see him being loyal to his performers. Mm, very much so. And, and Rachel, what about you? What did you make of this of this interesting trio? Yeah, I was, I was, I, I remembered the rest of the whole wrestling thing. I completely forgot that it was Randy Savage doing it. So the minute, you know, you see him and he's just, you know, beating the crap out of one person after the other. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, snap it to Slim Jim. Um, I just, that, that entire thing was just, uh, it's just a fun sequence, um, yeah, you know, with, with him and actually Sam uh, Raimi actually is in the wrestling scene. You just don't see him, but he's one of the people that throws popcorn at Peter. <laughs> <laughs> so you see the effect of him being in the scene. Uh, you just don't get to see him himself. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I love J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. And I am, you know, rewatching this, knowing that they have now... He is still J. Jonah Jameson, although slightly, he looks slightly different, but he still is J. Jonah Jameson in the MCU. Just makes me so happy just to see him in this and know that he's still playing a version of that, that in that universe, it's J.K. Simmons, but also the MCU. It's still J.K. Simmons. Just makes me very, very happy. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he's just, he's just hilarious. You know, when we go to the, the Daily Bugle for the first time and he's just like, you know, he's like, move so-and-so to page eight and give him 10% off. No, 5% off. And then, <laughs> 
you know, Peter's trying to sell him his pictures and he's like, $300 and I'll send you a meat basket. <laughs> like I love you in this role. <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. And 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 you thought some Bruce Campbell? Were you familiar with with uh, with Bruce Campbell? I recognize him. I've never seen any of the Evil Dead movies. Oh, okay. So I I recognize I recognize him. I get the I get the reference. You know, Halo, the King Baby, and the 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 chainsaw on the arm. Like I get the references. I know it when I see it, but I've never actually seen the move, the, any of the evil dead movies. So, but I, I recognize who he was. So, cause I've seen him in a few other things. Nick, I know you're, I know you're a horror fan, Nick. So I'm guessing you definitely love seeing Bruce Campbell <laughs> in this movie. Of course. Well, I mean, you know, I'm a huge, huge fan of Bruce Campbell's no, you know what, but no matter what he does, he just has that large than life personality, no matter what role. And that's why I think why, you know, Sam Raimi decided to have him, you know, you point out, of course, Charles, him being very loyal to his actors, but I think also because he knows that Bruce can take a role and run away with it because we see him doing it in this, and even more so when he's the usher in the, in the theater in Spider-Man 2. He just makes it so much more of a deal, if you will, compared to maybe another actor might. And so I was so happy to see Bruce Campbell. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and I, I definitely echo both your thoughts when it comes to J.K. Simmons, because, you know, he is the definitive uh, J. Jonah Jameson. And as I've mentioned before, there could, I don't think there could ever be another one. You have to retire the J. Jonah Jameson jersey after J.K. Simmons because I don't know if there's anybody else who can wear that that jersey in particular. And, you know, Macho Man Randy Savage, I grew up with the whole WWF thing, you know, big fan of Hulk Hogan's and Randy Savage. I actually had the wrestler-shaped pillows. And I one of the two oh, that God. I had. <laughs> one of the two that I, I remember those! Yeah. My, my on, on one of her numerous visits to the States, my mom came back and brought me two of those, a Hulk Hogan one, the Randy Savage oh, one. And I so I forgot those were a thing, but now yeah. that you mentioned it, like I remember seeing those advertised. <laughs> yeah, they were fantastic. Point, points to you for publicly admitting that, Nick. <laughs> well, as I said, I, I have no shame, as people know. So there you go. But yeah, so so it did bring back some some fond memories of when my sister and I actually used to, used to sit down and watch the WWF. So there you go. Um, so, of course, let's get to the big bad of this movie, a man who definitely needs no introductions whatsoever, the one yes. and only Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn, Green Goblin. So, Rachel, when it came to our big bads, what did you make of, of the Green Goblin? Oh, he's just, um, you know, for all the issues that I have with some of the other uh, parts of this movie, he's just, he's just creepy. And he does the, you know, as as, uh, Norman is succumbing to the madness um, and, you know, but you, you realize that um, after he goes through the experiment and he does not remember it and then he starts going out as the Green Goblin and does not remember it until we get to that point where he kind of confronts the Mr. Hyde his Dr. Jekyll um, inside of him and you know he has that conversation with himself in the mirror and his just his facial expressions and everything he's just he just really really just embodied the the madness that is um 
you know, the Green Goblin and Norman Osborn. And uh, I, you know, as, as much as I have issues with some of the other casting, I thought that this was just brilliant casting. Um, Mm. I just thought he did really, really well in this, in this role. And he did most of his stunts too. He did like 90% of his stunts, um, which is just, just crazy. Uh, (laughs) So, um, but yeah, he's just, you know, did that descent into madness. That's not an easy thing to do um, as an, as an actor. And I think he just does it really well, really, really well. And, you know, when he's being, father to harry but not father to harry you know the the standoffish um not affectionate father he i mean he does it really well i mean some people they can do one and not the other he does both really well so very well said and charles actually heard you uh you know very happily with you know comments yes. there when when we got to this character so clap your hands <laughs> yeah. So so yes. now 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 you get your 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 moments to uh, to gush when it comes to this to to William Defoe and Green Goblin. Yeah, obviously, you know the the Green Goblin as Spider-Man's arch enemy, uh, at least the Norman Osborn Osborn version of Green Goblin uh, is essentially you know the Spider-Man's version of the Joker, Lex Luthor. He's the key arch enemy in the Spider-Man mythos. So um, it takes a very special actor to pull that off. And once I, I learned that William Defoe was cast, I was extremely happy because I've been a fan of his since uh, he was in David Lynch's Wild at Heart way back when. And, and um, you know, I knew he would bring a lot to this role. Um, you know, obviously he, you know, he, he, he's a scenery chewer, chewer but he's, really good at it and he's and he's really great at the the sense of menace and and um especially when you know obviously things really ramp up when norman finds out peter's identity and then it becomes that big cat and mouse game of like well i gotta you know i'm gonna i I know you're spider-man and uh you know here i am i'm able to threaten your friends your loved ones and, uh, you know, just make things even more miserable for you because I know who you are. And Defoe is just so great at conveying that menace. Um, he's a, he's a gr- fantastic villain. The only limitation, of course, I think, is his Green Goblin costume, mm-hmm. which had a lot to be desired. I know, you know, back when the movie came out, a lot of fans, including myself, were very disappointed with the way the costume was portrayed. Uh, very much, you know, like a Power Rangers villain type design. <laughs> Thank you, a, Weird Al. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With, with with a mask that, that um, doesn't really, you know, convey the emotion that um, a more faithful version to the comic would have conveyed. With you know, allowing you know that would have allowed Defoe to you know move his face around and, and gesture and and um you know ex- be more expressive as an actor um one of the one of defoe's greatest um abilities as an actor is is his odd facial expressions that really unnerve you and as we saw you know when he, he when um when he's norman he's much more effective as a villain um and in and, and especially in that scene um at his house at in his manner that where he's having the conversation with his green goblin persona 
and we and you see the dissociative identity disorder coming through in a huge way and essentially he was Defoe was doing Gollum from Lord of the Rings before Gollum did it having a conversation with his evil self Mm -hmm. and um and uh you know it just and it was so effective the way Rami Rami shot that using the mirrors and giving that that um that that impression that it was almost like two people were having that conversation when in fact it's only one. And I thought that was brilliant direction on his part. I thought it was conveyed so, so well. Uh, or even, you know, when the hat, the mask is hanging there on the chair and Ramey would just kind of zo- focus on the mask as while well, hearing Defoe's green goblin voice and then switching back to Defoe as Norman um, carrying on that conversation. I thought it was very clever storytelling on his part and Defoe just really rises to that that challenge very well said and that cackle I mean I don't know how yes. many men can cackle as well as as uh, as Defoe can and, and actually you know sound creepy because others might be almost almost sound comical but here was just like so spine chilling I mean even when you get Harry coming into the house and hearing that's like dad is that you <laughs> okay so you so see has he's heard his, his father cackle before i don't know but um yeah it was really creepy and as i actually had mentioned in our spider-man 2 review i think the way this character was portrayed is very much in keeping with Raimi's style as a director because as we will see with doc ock and other villains in the Raimi verse when it comes to spider-man i think the underlying theme is that everybody has a dark side which is kind of dormantly waiting for a chance to come out albeit with an aid either by a microchip fusing itself to your, to you like in Doc Ock's case or with the aid of a dodgy chemical compound in Osborne's case. I think it also does somewhat harken back to Evil Dead and it's almost like a MacGuffin which brings about the birth of evil into the world. It's almost like the Necronomicon of Spider-Man, if you will, because it's it's just that kind of because in this case it's the formula is almost the Necronomicon which Norman drinks, which brings out that evil within And I think the idea of also making Goblin that split personality before drinking the formula is is great because unlike the comics, Norman here is a rather amiable guy and it actually is a man that Peter looks up to and is incredibly paternal towards him. And we can tell he's been a longtime friend of the Parker family, while in the comics... Norman is very much Lex Luthor on steroids. I mean, he's very much the amoral businessman and the formula drives him to insanity. It almost amplifies that that amorality which he has, Um, though he does later become a more redeemable villain when it comes to spit personality of him and Gobby. The scenes we get where Norman talks to Goblin persona, like you were both saying in the earlier in the mirror and then to the mask on the chair. I'm sure, like you were saying, Charles must have inspired Peter Jackson and his crew when they came up with showing the split personalities of Smeagol and Gollum in Lord of the Rings. And I like that in death, we see that Norman is able to retain his sanity. You're kind of asking Peter not to tell Harry about his dark secret. So it was just wonderfully, wonderfully played. Absolutely loved it. Okay, guys, so let's get to ratings then. Where does this movie rate for you on a scale of 1 to 10? Let's start with you, Charles. I give this one 9 out of 10 Goblin Gliders. I think it's a solid movie. It's not perfect. It, like I said, it has its flaws, but I think it's overall, I think it's a very solid superhero tale, a great origin story, and a, and more most importantly, a wonderful depiction of Spider-Man that fans had wanted to see for decades. Very well said. And what about you, Rachel? What do you give this? Um, 
Yeah, it's not my favorite. Uh, my my favorite are the Holland ones. I just I think that they, I think that um, they kind of in my you know what I'm looking for for someone who essentially is playing two roles at the same time, playing Peter Parker and Spider Man. Um, I just think they they've gotten it with Tom Holland. Um, where both Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, it's like, eh, they're, they're okay on one side, but not on the other. Um, so, uh, and um, it is it is kind of dated. I think it's kind of cheesy um, in some bits. Um, so, but it, it is entertaining. Um, William Defoe's performance definitely elevates it. Um, so does you know, J.K. Simmons <laughs> uh, for what screen time he has. Um, he he just he brings it. Um, so I that definitely helps bump it up, uh, back up a little. Um, but just yeah you know, I can't help but compare it to the the spider mans that have come since even mm-hmm. you know both live action and animated like into the spider verse mm-hmm. um it's it just it doesn't hold up as as well but I, I give it a passing grade six and a half <laughs> very very uh lackluster uh pumpkin bombs uh, <laughs> they'll explode but they won't take down the entire building <laughs> well, i like that i'm actually you know maybe this is nostalgia talking on my side but i'm actually going to give this an eight out of ten spidey masks because um it was such a big film for myself and my and my young and my brother when you know growing up and uh, it granted the special effects ha- are a little bit dated but you know of course willem defoe's portrayal is is stellar of course, we've got a legendary J.K. Simmons. I think Toby Maguire did, did also a good job. And all in all, you know, being also a fan of, of Raimi as a director, I thought it was great to actually see him do something outside of the, the horror world. So this was actually a great, great example of what the man is capable of. So, yeah, it's an 8 out of 10 for me. So let's get to reading recommendations then. Rachel, I believe you are not a, a, a an assiduous comic book reader, correct? No, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> so... I guess then, then Charles, this is your time to shine. Then, when it, comes to, <laughs> yeah. when it comes to the comics, did you have any stories that you think our listeners should read if they enjoyed this movie? Well, that's okay, Rachel. I have enough recommendations for both. Of us. <laughs> I, I, I got you covered. I got you. Yay! Back. All right. So obviously, um, I'm going to start off with Amazing Fantasy number 15, the very or- first appearance of Spider-Man from August 1962 by Stanley and Steve Ditko. This is the this is uh this is it i mean this is where, where you have peter getting bitten by the spider um failing to stop the robber that kills his uncle ben having to confront that burglar and um and uh you know just it, it, it's obviously you know where the legend the mythos spawns from it it's um it's such a key story such a you know it, obviously you know created in the 60s it, you know it doesn't feel as, as timely in a lot of places especially in the artwork but it's still you know it still holds up and and it's still relevant obviously um in spider-man films today so i definitely recommend that uh i'd recommend also recommend amazing spider-man number 14 from july 1964 the grotesque adventure of the green goblin which was the very first appearance of the green goblin 
created by Stanley and Steve Git- Ditko once again. Um, interestingly, in this one, in the in the Goblin's first appearance, we don't know by the end of the story who the Goblin really is. That mystery is kind of kept. The Goblin returns a couple of times after that, but it's not until um, Amazing Spider-Man number thirty-eight and thirty-nine, um, you know, which. Uh, where in from August of 1966, so like two years later, where we finally find out that the Green Goblin is Norman Osborn, and in a you know in a, in a big key battle between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin, where the Goblin finds out Peter's identity as Spider-Man, and uh, which was which I think was a lot of this was um, became the influence for Spider-Man 2002. And so I, I definitely recommend that. Those were, but that was by Stanley and John Ramita Sr. And then I would recommend after that, um, Amazing Spider-Man number 121 and 122 from June and July of 1973, the night that Gwen Stacy died. Uh, this was a this was a climactic battle between the two. In, in the first part, in the 120, issue 121, the Green Goblin kills Gwen Stacy by throwing her off um, the Brooklyn Bridge. And uh, obviously, the, and then the question becomes, well, did the Goblin actually kill her or did Spider-Man kill her while accidentally while trying to save her from falling as her neck snaps? And um, it's something that, that, that the lingering issues can continue through Spider-Man stories to this day. And then in issue 122, The Goblin's Last Stand, the Green Goblin dies in a very similar fashion to how he dies here in the movie and um, where, the, where the Goblin Glider impales him and uh, he falls upon it. So, uh, so definitely a key influence for Raimi's Spider-Man movie. Great, great uh, recommendations there for sure, Charles. And you know what? I'm so glad you actually touched up on the the Stanley Joramita Senior Mike Esposito story. How green was my goblin? Which I actually love. Just the title for that of that of right that, of that story is just fantastic. Stanley titles are fantastic. <laughs> yep. And in fact, speaking of Stanley titles, I would also suggest Bring Back My Goblin to Me, which is uh, Amazing Spider-Man Volume One, twenty issues twenty seven and twenty eight. That was Stanley and Steve Ditko. This you know, as Charles mentioned the Goblin's first appearance, this isn't, of course, the Goblin's first appearance, but I think it's one of his finest when being drawn by co-creator Steve Ditko. At this point in his career, it became clear that the Goblin was as important of an antagonist as Dr. Octopus or any other villain. His appearance had been worked out, and he was now operating in conjunction with other bosses. And unlike Crime Master, who we get in this one, he, Green Goblin was definitely here to stay, and I'm actually kind of glad we don't get Crime Master, but that's another story. And, yeah. added to, <laughs> and added to that, I would also suggest In the Grip of the Goblin, that's Amazing Spider-Man 96 to 98, written by Stan Lee, Gil Kane, John Romita Sr., and Frank Jacoya. These issues are best known for breaking Marvel Comics free from the Comics Code Authority, as the publisher chose to show Harry Osborn addicted to drugs. 
And they also brought the Green Goblin back and made his alter ego Norman a more sympathetic character. And instead of being purely evil, he was torn between genuine feelings for his son and the effects of the Goblin serum. This led Peter Parker to spare his father's friend again, one of his greatest mistakes. So that is another great one for sure in the grip of the Goblin. So, dear listeners, if you want to be, of course, like Charles and Rachel and join us here on the show to discuss a movie of your choice, feel free to shoot us an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. We also really appreciate your thoughts and feedback about the show. You can reach out to us with those also at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. Feel free to show your support by giving us a like on Facebook, where you'll find us as Happiness and Darkness. You can follow us on Twitter, we're at High Darkness Pod, or on Instagram under Hin Darkness. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast and feeling generous, you can check out the great tiers we have going on on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash happiness and darkness. And speaking of which, I want to send a huge shout out to uh, our latest patron, Ray, who recently subscribed to one of our tiers. So very, very a big, big thank you to you, Ray, for supporting us. So, guys, when it comes to you and what you do, where can our fine listeners find you on the interwebs? Let's start with you, Rachel. Oh, my. Where to start? Uh <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, uh, on a weekly basis, uh, most of the time you can find me uh, with the Five-ish Fangirls. We are a weekly pop culture, geek culture, uh, entertainment podcast where we talk about books, movies, TV shows, other various things that are geeky and nerdy that we get all excited and squee about. Um, you can find us at the com and anywhere you find podcasts and um on our webpage, you can find all of our social media uh, accounts and my personal ones as well. And then I am also part of um, Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast with Nick, uh, where every other week we are going and uh, watching and reviewing every single Academy Award winner for Best Picture in chronological order. So, yay! Yeah. <laughs> and Charles, when it comes to you, where can folks find you? Well, uh, of course, you can find me at Charles Skaggs on the Twitter machine or at Charles Skaggs on Instagram, Facebook, Charles Skaggs in Hilliard, Ohio, and my blog of Geeky Things, Damn Good Coffee and Hot, where I talk about um, all kinds of comic books, sci-fi news, news of my other podcasts that I do for the Southgate Media Group, including... Um, Ghostwood, the Twin Peaks podcast that I do with Zan Sprouse, uh, who you know from the Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast, and where we talk all things Twin Peaks, David Lynch, and uh, currently going through um, the we're like we're I think we're at the fifth episode now of our six part um, Twin Peaks actors who appeared on the X Files. So we've been going through some X Files episodes and having a blast doing that. Um, hope everybody checks that out. Uh, that's, that's, that, that's been really well received by a lot of people and we get great feedback from people like Nick who write in. So, uh, you definitely want to check that out. Also next stop everywhere, the Dr. Who podcast where, um, myself and my partner in time, Jesse Jackson and a bunch of assorted, wonderful special guest companions, including, uh, people like, uh, Nick and, and Rachel and Zan and all kinds of other wonderful people uh, help us talk all kinds of classic Doctor Who, modern Doctor Who, Torchwood, Sarah Jane Adventures, and uh, have a blast doing that. Big Finish audios, you name it, we cover it. And um, the Phantom Zone podcast they do with Jesse Jackson and occasionally maybe a DJ Nick thrown in there as well, where we talk uh, comic book television shows 
including recently we talked um, the Umbrella Academy and we've talked Watchmen and Stargirl and all kinds of comic book TV shows. And then lastly, Titan Talk, the Titans podcast, where a certain DJ Nick and I recently wrapped up Doom Patrol season two. And we eagerly await um, maybe bringing Jesse Jackson back to help us talk Titan season three whenever uh, that makes its debut on HBO Max. But uh, in the meantime, I hope everybody checks those out and uh, and I hope you enjoy them. Well, folks, you certainly have your listening podcasting orders for sure, because definitely check out all these wonderful, wonderful projects that the, the both Rachel and Charles bring to you on a regular basis because they are fantastic. And I'm not just saying that because of the gold standard that I'm a part of or Titan Talk, which I'm very privileged to be a part of as well. But they're just two wonderful people and definitely do a fantastic job at podcasting. When it comes to me, for you country music lovers, I also host the radio show Whiskey and Cigarettes, where we play traditional country, today's country and everything else in between. For more about that and how we're to tune in you can visit our website that's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com rachel of course mentioned gold standard the oscars movie podcast where along with her with her and zan we are of course discussing all these great oscar movies if you do want to uh, get in on the conversations and join us to re- review a film you can send us an email at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com and of course also the great titan talk the titans podcast that charles mentioned which i had a blast discussing doom patrol season two and certainly look forward to more of that of that wonderful tv good Goodness. And yes. <laughs> yes, indeedy. And speaking of the things to come on this show, next week we'll be joined by, speaking of the Five-ish Fangos, Chrissy Anyavirden and a surprise special guest to discuss the 2017 James Gunn film, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. That said, when it comes to you, Charles, and to you, Rachel, once again, I look forward to having you back here on Happiness and Darkness, and I certainly thank you very, very much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Have a great time. Well, I always have a blast talking to you both. Well, folks, thanks as always for listening to the show and supporting us. We will see you next week with Chrissy, a surprise guest, and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Until then, stay super. Ciao, Mabigo. Spider-Man!